this uh, This is Joe Cole. This is Ruben Loftus Cheek, and you're listening to the London, the London is Blue, Blue podcast. podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode of the London is Blue podcast. As always, your host, Brandon, joined by my co host, Dan. Sadly, no Nick today, but Dan, it is a Matt Loss special. Uh, we just wrapped up the pre match presser from Turin with Tuchel and Jorginho, and so uh, a heck of a lot more to cover than what we anticipated. Well, I mean, I think that's usually the case when we bring Matt on, and, and again, no Nick. I mean, yesterday was his birthday, so, you know, I'm glad he had a chance to celebrate that, and yeah, I, I will say it's not like a hangover thing, right? It's not like celebrating <laughs> too hard because he was up earlier than any of us texting that he was <laughs> getting on work calls, so uh, maybe he didn't get a chance to enjoy it as much. were hungover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But Matt, how was the trip to Turin? How was Italy? Yeah, yeah, I was just saying to you guys, it was an early start. It was a 4 a.m. start from London Stansted. Uh, the flight was about 6.45. It was it was a lot of Chelsea fans on that flight, actually. I was quite surprised. I didn't know how many would travel, and I thought a lot would travel the day of the game. But I would say 90% of the flight was full, and that 80% of those were Chelsea fans. So I think there's going to be a good turnout in Turin. Um that nobody was very loud because it was so so early. Everybody was pretty sleepy, but yeah, good 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 journey. Good weather, twenty five degrees here, sunny, all set for a good match tomorrow. Well, we're excited. Obviously, that's what we're going to focus a lot of this about is the Champions League match versus Juventus. And then obviously after the break, we'll touch on questions because we always love fielding questions for Matt from you all. So. Uh, Matt, right away, we've got some interesting news on the fitness. Uh, roster and unfortunately it sounds like up to four players out mm. while Pulisic, Mount and Reese James are out with injuries um, it doesn't sound like Pulisic is anywhere close to being back I'm surprised Mount is still out and Reese James it sounds like it's day to day based on how much pain he can tolerate yeah I mean Tuchel didn't give an awful lot of detail about the length of their injuries I mean I think I think Reese James could well miss the Southampton game as well um, and also be out for the England games and maybe come back after the international break sometime um, for Chelsea. It, I, depending on who you talk to, it could be anywhere between sort of two and two and three weeks. I, I'd be surprised if he made the Southampton game, but as I say, Tuchel didn't make it clear, and I, I, I'm not 100%. Uh, Mason Mount, I think they were hoping would be fit for this game, so that's a blow. And then obviously with, with the Kante COVID situation, I never thought Pulisic was going to be fit for this game. I didn't get that impression at all. Um, and then the, the Kante COVID situation rules him out for this game in Southampton. So all of a sudden, you know, Tuchel has said, spoken a lot about the fact that while he has a very talented squad, he feels it is a, a small squad. And you, you can see that when a, a few injuries happen at once, then obviously you can see that the, the squad, while being excellent and and I still maintain, I think it's probably the best balanced squad in the Premier League. It isn't huge. And you can already see that little problems start to occur. So it'll be interesting, some of the team selections now. So, Matt, you know, I think that maybe kind of digging into the Conte one, because it seemed to have the most follow-up questions for Tuchel in the press conference. But, you know, it seems like the follow-up questions were asked about vaccination status in the squad. Tuchel talking about not knowing where the squad is fully at. Can you maybe elaborate on his tone and kind of how he responded to those questions? Look, I thought he dealt with it well. It's a difficult subject for managers. And it's, it's you know, it's a tricky subject for journalists to put to managers. You, We would all prefer to talk about football and we would prefer not to have to sort of delve into the almost the private medical issues of, of players and squads. But it is a fact that the vaccination issue is a big issue particularly in the UK, I, I imagine worldwide. Um, and the vaccination issue with footballers is a big issue because we know that the government and one of the chief scientists has been sending messages to, vid to football clubs, really asking them to urge their players to get vaccinated. We know that the Premier League have been urging players to get vaccinated. And we also know that the vaccination take-up within football doesn't necessarily quite reflect society. You know, the vaccination take-up in society, I think, is probably a higher percentage than than footballers because, you know, footballers get to operate in a bubble. They get tested every day. So there are footballers who believe that if they're being tested every day and working in a bubble, that there's not the need to take any risk whatsoever on a vaccine. Um, and the vaccination take-up is smaller. 
And it is going to become an increasing issue because we're coming out of summer now, we're coming into autumn. The, the COVID rates in England and the UK are rising again. Kids are back at school. Obviously, the change in weather is going to mean a rise in infections. And it's going to make it a bigger issue again. So it was fully understandable that, that Tuchel got asked a lot about it. It's fully understandable that it's not an easy situation for him to have to talk about because he's talking about other people's personal choices. Um, and I can well believe that he doesn't fully know the vaccination status of all his players. He he isn't in a position where he necessarily has to know that. That will be the medical department and the club who will have a better handle on that. All he has to know is who's available for which games. You know, one of the, I guess, interesting things, Matt, and I guess, you know, the maybe the stance on this I take is that, you know, the club kind of receives a lot of positive praise for things like, um, you know, Lukaku's phenomenal interview with uh, CNN recently about, you know, trying to continue to stamp out racism, the anti-Semitism campaigns. The club itself has run vaccination clinics to get people in. And I mean, this just seems counter to what the club tries to do. Um, and, you know, I mean, maybe from that sense, you know, is there kind of like disappointment from Tuchel or is it more of a kind of just like this is the reality I'm dealt with and I, I, I'm kind of in a bad position because the Premier League doesn't have a mandate. You know, the government has not mandated footballers, you know, in the UK requiring the vaccine as like a condition of work. Yeah, look, I mean, it's exactly that. G given that the, the government haven't told people they have to get the vaccine and as you say, given the Premier League haven't mandated it, Thomas Tuchel can't really mandate it um however much some people might like him to in a way because you can't tell people their personal choices you, you just can't you can't you know you can advise players not to drink alcohol you can advise players not to go to bars or nightclubs and you can base a selection on it if you want to but you can't actually ban them from doing so you know there is a there is a, an element of freedom of choice and, and freedom of people living their lives within this and if they're not breaking the law or they're not going against mandates, then it's very, very difficult. I think probably most, my my take is that most Premier League managers would like their all of their squads to get vaccinated because at the end of the day, it does set an example, it does send a message. And also, very crudely, it, it gives them the best chance of, of probably not getting the, the virus and giving the manager their full squad. So from a selfish point of view, the managers are more likely to want their players to get vaccinated. But... They, I mean, some managers have come out very strongly on it. Neil Warnock, for instance, has come out extremely strongly on it. But a lot of managers are very wary of, you know, telling footballers how to live their lives, particularly on a medical issue like this. Um, it's, it's a tricky subject for anybody, and everybody has a personal opinion on it. And as you say, the club have, I believe, taken a bit of a stance to try and encourage people to get vaccinated. I feel that's where the club are, without going so far that they're kind of ramming it down people's throats. Um, but again, even if the club does that, they can't still then force the, the players, therefore, to to have the vaccine. So it's a tricky position, and it's, it's going to be an, a live issue for a while, I think. And you know, people might get a little bit frustrated with journalists putting managers or players on the spot about it. But when when players test positive and are ruled out of big games, you know, Juventus this week might not feel like as big as Juventus normally would because they're having a bad time and they've got their own injuries. But, you know, coming to Juventus and losing a player like N'Golo Kante is a big, big blow to Chelsea. And we don't know whether it's because he's had the vaccine or not. At the end of the day, we don't know whether he's had the vaccine and even if he had, he could have caught the virus. We saw that with Christian Pulisic, who the club did tell us had had the vaccine. But it's a big issue. And so, and because it's because of COVID, that brings up the whole vaccine vaccine thing into the limelight. So I, I, I want to ask one short question. We don't need to elaborate on this one because I don't want this to entirely be kind of the, the vaccination, you know, about this. There's plenty of football to talk about. But one counterpoint I threw up is, and I don't know if this is accurate, so please, I'm not hanging my hat on this. But the players went from, you know, two seasons ago, the break, the season went into the summer, then they had no break, and we started again in the fall. Then Chelsea went to the Champions League final. Most of the players went to the Euros. 
and then they went right to preseason. Do you also feel like there might be a condensed timeline where club and countries have not given them the chance to like take the four weeks to get it? No. Okay. Simply, simply no. I, I think, I think everyone has had the chance to get it at some point. Um, and people who haven't had it, and I'm not criticizing them, it's personal choice, and I'm not getting into that debate, but people have, who haven't had it have done so through their own personal choice is my understanding. Fair enough. Well, that is good to know, Matt. <laughs> and and what, what I'll say is just um, before we kind of transition to tactical changes is uh, it's super easy to find an appointment for a vaccine, uh, both in the U.S. and the U.K., which is where the majority of our listenership is. And so in the U.S., it's vaccines.gov and then it's the NHS.UK in the U.K. So uh, if you haven't had a chance yet easy to go do and make an appointment to do so. All right. Well, obviously it's relevant to the squad and who's available for selection, which is why we talk about it. I think it did kind of catch uh, some of your journalist, uh, you know, colleagues and yourself by surprise, I think, Matt, which is why that ended up being a big focus of the press conference. But also now we have to talk about the fact that Tuchel has to travel away to Juventus coming off the defeat uh, uh, to City at home in the league. And... I guess, do you feel like Tuchel's taking that defeat a little bit hard? I mean, kind of the things he's talking about, he wasn't really thrilled. It seems like he was accepting that the way he set up the team, you know, wasn't ideal in hindsight. Um, do you think, I, I guess I'm trying to figure out, because we haven't really seen these these situations with Tuchel, is is he going to change a lot? Now he has four injuries, you know, plus a, a COVID exposure to deal with. Do you think he's going to come out and we're going to see something wildly different or he's going to go even more back to basics, uh, kind of facing this defeat in a tough test away? I'd be very surprised if we saw anything sort of vastly different just because his hand is a little bit forced by injuries. He won't have had the time to work on a lot because we all know there was a small preseason anyway, and now we're just in one of these situations at the moment with the Champions League restarting and the Carabao Cup, where it's just game after game after game. So there's not a lot of time on the training pitch. Um, I would be quite surprised if there was anything drastic in terms of formation change or style change. He's going to have to make personnel changes. Um, but again, whether he's willing to take a big risk within those personnel changes... I personally doubt it. I don't think it's probably the right time to. I think it's the time to probably try and dig in, even if the, the performance isn't amazing, to try and just get get through the next couple of games through the international break. Um, I think probably his disappointment comes from the performance rather than the result. I don't think losing to Manchester City would ever, unless it's you know right at the end of the season and you're it's a real title six pointer. I don't think losing to Man City, having not lost yet this season, is something that would make him particularly upset. Um, I think the nature of the performance and also on the back of, let's face it, a sticky first half performance against Tottenham, a sticky first half performance against Aston Villa. We haven't seen a 90 minute performance for a little while from Chelsea now. A sticky performance in the Carabao Cup. I know it was different players. I think it's probably the accumulation of, of a few poor halves and then a poor performance against City that, that's maybe disappointed and upset him rather than the result itself. The result itself, actually, losing 1-0 at City, that can happen at any time and that can happen with a great performance. But it was a really disappointing performance and the setup and the tactics in that game didn't work. No shots on target, which is a damning, a damning stat. So what expectations maybe, you know, kind of from what you've analyze from the press conference are you expecting from this Chelsea team Matt maybe transitioning a little bit from what Tuchel said to how you're interpreting it and what your expectation is look I, I think he's going to want them I think he's going to want them very the pressing I think is going to be an issue I think he's going to want the pressing better than it has been um, and higher up the pitch and that is difficult to do without Mason Mount in the team you know, that is where they miss Mason. Mason is a guy who often leads the press at the front. Um, I think he'd have been disappointed with Werner's pressing, I've got to be honest with you. And I know Werner's pressing under Lampard was an issue. Whether now with Mount out he can he can take out Werner, we'll see. But I, I think there's probably a little issue there. Um, and I think he's just going to want them to control that midfield better. Um so that's what he will be looking for. He'll want them to take control of the match in, in Juventus and he'll want them to press high 
particularly as you know, Juventus with Benucci, there is an opportunity, however good a defender he is, and he is an incredible defender, there is an opportunity against Benucci to try and press high at the pitch and, and cause problems that way. So I would imagine that's what he'll be looking for. Um, and I think his team selection will probably reflect that, although that is vastly hampered by the absentees. I think there's going to be uh, an interesting stat line that comes out about the average age of the center backs in this one. I feel like Opta is going to be all over that. <laughs> um, never, far- never. Yeah, Matt, were you invite? Were you listening to the Juventus side of the press conference? Have they already held held theirs? No, that's this evening. That's at uh, that's at eight p.m. local here, so that hasn't come up yet. All we really know from the Juventus end at the moment is is what you guys know is that Dybala and Morata are out. I'm a bit sad Morata's out. I'd have been that'd have been fun to see Morata against Chelsea, given his struggles at Chelsea. Um, I think that the, the local guys think Delict will will partner Benucci. I think they think it'll be Chiesa. Um, Chiesa may be playing up front um, at, at the t- right at the top end of the pitch, which again will be interesting. You know, we saw that Chiesa was wonderful in the Euros. You know, real star star man and really dangerous player. He he can go missing in games a little bit, but he can also really take the game by the scruff of the neck and particularly on the break cause a lot of problems. So. That'll be very interesting if Chiesa plays. Um, yeah, I think Moyes Keane looks like he's going to play up there. So again, you know, he will be, maybe they can go long into Moyes Keane because he is a more physical physical sort of presence. And then, of course, they've got Locatelli, who I think is probably there, from what I understand, Juventus' standout player this season in what's been a difficult season so far. It sounds like Locatelli has been playing well. When you look at their potential team you know I'll go through it for you Chesney, Danilo, Benucci, De Ligt, Alexandro of course linked with Chelsea for a long time, Cuadrado former Chelsea, Bentecourt, Locatelli, Rabiot, Keen, Chiesa despite all their problems and despite their injuries you know it's a decent side on paper they, they should be a challenge for Chelsea they should be a test for Chelsea. Well, and it should be good to let a player who's played against them more recently, like Roman Lukaku, get at that back line. Uh, you know, he did scoring once against Inter or for Inter last season in the matches they played against Juventus. So at least someone on the side has a familiarity with uh, putting one past uh, the the old lady's defense. Yeah, and you know, he he, I would imagine he'll relish it. I'd imagine there'll be a lot of local interest in Italy in in Lukaku coming back. Like you say, playing against Juventus into Milan for a couple of seasons, we're really sort of gunning for that Juventus team to try and take the title off them. So that is that's an interesting subplot, and you would imagine he will come here full of confidence because he smashed it in Italy. So I th- obviously, it's kind of funny how sometimes there's a team that has domestic form and European form, and I think that's what you're going to get from Juventus. While they may be off to a rough start, new manager, uh, well, old manager, new manager. Um, you know, they've had some changes in the squad. Uh, you know, you, for whatever reason, the Champions League tends to bring out a different side of teams. Uh, we've seen Chelsea obviously be mid table, win it. Uh, we've seen Liverpool um, not really struggle in the league, but definitely were much better in Europe than they were domestically. It happens. So, um, like, this is. Uh, as far as like the group stage goes, important. Um, you know, sometimes these are the matches that are different between the number one, number two seed. I'm not really convinced how big it is to be the number one seed anymore, as we've like <laughs> seen the draws and like these wild results. It, all that matters is advancing. So you want to at least get a point away, uh, you know, on the road from this one. But uh, I don't expect uh, Juve to to roll over by by any means. No, I mean, what I would say, what I, I was encouraged about for Chelsea, and, you know, we haven't heard from Allegri today yet, but we heard from Allegri at the weekend after after Juve's win at the weekend when he revealed that Dybala and Morata are out. And he was a little bit negative, I thought. He was asked about the Chelsea tie and how big it was then. And and he kind of said, well, it's a, it's a big game, but it's not one of the most important games in the tie. The two games against Zenit will decide this group for us. And I thought that was a little bit defeatist from Allegri and sent a slightly negative message to his players where he was almost giving them a free pass for this game, whether that was to try and take pressure off them. But I, I was surprised he almost tried to write off the importance of this game for them. So we'll see if that message changes later. Hmm. 
Super interesting. Uh, I guess just lastly, anything from Jorginho that you gleaned out of the presser? I think it got cut short for us, or was it just short in general? It was very short in general. Um, he he was late in and, and early out, shall we say. Um, yeah, I think it was only about five minutes for Jorginho. Hmm. He didn't want to get into the uh, the COVID or the vaccine subject at all. He, he completely sidestepped that. I've got to be honest, he really didn't have a lot to say. Uh, it Tough felt like question to roll into, though, to be fair. <laughs> it is. I mean, I, I suspect the slight delay in him coming in was was Chelsea very professionally briefing him beforehand to say, you know, look, uh, Thomas has just been asked a lot about this and, and unfortunately for you, you're going to get asked about it and you can either sidestep it or you can take it head on. He chose to sidestep it. Sometimes, sometimes the player press conferences are great. Sometimes they're fulfilling an obligation. Today's was very much fulfilling an obligation, I felt. Uh, Dan, I loved his tactic. I'm sorry, what? I didn't understand. You don't usually get the, that four times out of Jorginho out of five questions. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a good tactical strategy. It's equivalent to passing the ball sideways. <laughs> All right. Yeah, okay. or, it's, well, or it's, it's, it's the old manager didn't see it. It's one of those. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. We favored off of it. No, I, I didn't see it. Was it a foul? Uh, what a shame. Well, uh, great finish from the lad. So anyways, we're going to take our ad break. But when we get back, we're going to be fielding questions from all of you to Matt. Uh, so a little bit of uh, around the horn style here. So thanks to sponsors for, an, for financially supporting the show. We'll be right back. All right, Dan, I'm going to let you kick this one off. A little Q&A time from the, the Twitter, the Discord. Oh, so many questions. Yeah, we'll start off with Tyler's who asks, who does Matt think is more likely to stay at Chelsea next season? And he's talking about two loanees in Gallagher and Gilmore. Gallagher having a bit of a flying start at Crystal Palace. And unfortunately, poor Billy G having a, not a, you know, getting opportunity, but having a rough go in the club that he's at with Norwich, just continuing to take a, uh, a beating after beating Matt what's your sense on any type of future plans for those two and do you see any um have you had a chance to watch either of them a little bit this season I've watched a little bit of Gallagher and been really impressed actually I think he's come on since last season you know I was I was quite impressed with him at West Brom last season um he did well he did well in a you know a very difficult season for them and and playing the sort of football that you wouldn't for a long time wouldn't necessarily think would suit him and I thought he he did well for West Brom and I, I, you know, being from the Midlands myself and West Brom being a rival of Villa, I have West Brom friends who were very, very keen on Colin Gallagher and liked him a lot. But looking at him already in this Palace side, I think he's come on, the style that Vieira wants to play is very much suited to him. Vieira, I feel, is trying to almost build a team around him. He seems to be the absolute funnel for everything um, attacking-wise they do. His energy is great, his attitude is great. I think he's come on a step again. And my only slight fear for him coming back for Chelsea is I just don't know where he plays because they have so much of that talent in the number 10 and wide positions that, you know, you have got to be some player to get into there. And he is, he's clearly a very, very talented player. But I struggle to see opportunities for him, but he's doing really well and he's going to force Chelsea to have a good look at that, I would imagine, if he carries on like he is. Um, Billy Gilmore, look, I know there's been a lot of talk about is this a good loan for Billy Gilmore just because Norwich are losing. That could be great for Billy Gilmore. You know, the, the, it's such a test of character and such a way to build up someone's character to be in a in a team that is struggling. And what what Chelsea know with, with Fark and, and Norwich is that they won't ditch their principles. They won't ditch the way they play because they are losing games. So it's not like all of a sudden they're going to start hitting long ball after long ball, which would probably be bad for Billy. I suppose the only fear for Billy was if Farker were to get sacked because it was very much, that loan was very much built around Farker and his relationship with Thomas Tuchel. I think we've spoken about that on the show before. So the only worry there would be if, if Farker's position becomes a problem because of their results and, and that could impact Billy a little bit. But I actually think it will do Billy the world of good if he's playing week in week in out week in week out in the premier league even if it's a team that's losing a lot I, that's different for billy he's he's not used to that and that will build his mental strength and his mental toughness and i personally only see good things in terms of who i i see maybe coming back quicker probably billy just because i think there's more opportunity within the position he plays 
but it, that's a really tough question after sort of six games of the season, to be honest with you. Look, Billy's got to fight for minutes, too. You know, we didn't see him play in the last match, but that means he's going to have to be grafting on the training ground pitch to make sure that he is in that lineup every single time. And to your point, Matt, you know, he's going to be getting opportunities in the sense of, um, playing the style in which I think Chelsea really want him to because of the system that Norwich playing. So the good news in training, he's going to be playing that possession, move the ball fast system and everything. Uh, just quick reminder, uh, Gilmore born in 2001 and Gallagher 2000, right? So you're talking about some young guys, 2021. Uh, they've got <laughs> some time to develop, which is also exciting, but it's, it just goes back to Chelsea fans. We love a good uh, exercise, thought exercise about who who's the next. We always play who's up next. So uh, speaking of the guy who's actually won the most who's up next honors over the years, Ruben Loftus-Cheek. Yeah, we, we all remember him. Uh, Matt asking, do you think Ruben already surpassed Saul in the depth chart? If he can keep progressing and continue to gain confidence, he could be a big problem for opposing teams. Feel like Saul might be fifth choice already. Uh, two strong sub appearances for Ruben. Matt, is he back? Well, what I thought was actually really interesting was the position he played against Aston Villa in the Carabao Cup when he played in a, as a sort of more anchor midfield role. And that to me pointed to the fact that maybe Thomas Tuchel is thinking of the fact that maybe he has just surpassed Soul a little bit while Soul feels his way in because it felt like that was maybe a little test of Ruben. You know, if, if I'm going to see you ahead of Sal. For, for the short term, at least, can you play in that slightly further back midfield role for me? Can you can you play as one of the two sixes, or can you play almost as a pivot? And he was superb in that Villa game. He was probably Chelsea's best player in that Carabao Cup game. Um, he's done well. He's done really well. You know, it, all that all that Ruben could do was when he got a chance, he had to grasp it and really give Tuchel something to think about. And that is exactly what he's done. And that is fantastic. The team selection for Wednesday night here in Turin could be really interesting, actually, because with no Mason and no Kante, can Ruben force his way into that, that starting lineup for a Champions League game? I possibly see him going Kai Havertz above Ruben still just at the moment. Um, and maybe even Sal, because Sal, you would imagine in the Champions League, would have that experience and you know, coming into the Champions League shouldn't be a shock for him, as is, and, you know, against an Italian team who should be slower than the English teams. However, Ruben's got to be in the thoughts for here in Turin, I'd imagine. And if he were to get in, that would be a massive sign and a massive pat on the back for Ruben. And I personally would be delighted for him. Um, but all credit to Ruben, because he's, even in even though this season is in its early stages, he's had to really wait for that chance and he so wanted to just get an opportunity to, to try and grasp. And it feels like he, he's done that already just by making people think and maybe making people talk about him again. Again, Dan, uh, when it comes to Ruben, I would actually prefer he not play in the front three and like come off the bench and play in the middle two if we do go back to the two-man midfield because to Matt's point, he's looked better the deeper he is versus having to play with his back to goal or having to play on the turn. Yeah, no, no, not opposed to, you know, really anything that gets Ruben minutes in the side. I think we will uh, raise our hands again and proclaim our undying affection for Ruben Loftus-Cheek and our hopes that he makes it good at Chelsea. And if this is the way to do it in a deeper lying position, we're, we're OK with that. And also, this, uh, just to add, there's a Southampton game as well, because, you know, Kante's, we know Kante's out the Southampton game. We don't know yet whether Mason Mount will be ready. It's got to be a bit of a race against time. Um, so, you know, even if Ruben doesn't start in Turin, maybe he could start against Southampton, but it's, it's really good to see. It's really good. He, he's just someone who deserves some luck. He deserves a break, whether it will be enough to completely reignite his Chelsea career, but he just deserves a break somewhere. You know, Matt, we also got an interesting question from Mac and he wanted to know, it kind of said an earlier in an earlier podcast that you've done with us, you've talked about how Roman Abramovich really does not grant interviews to <laughs> the press. Uh, it, we're still waiting on your exclusive for some point in the hopeful <laughs> future. But 
He asked if any journalist has tried, which I'm sure you have, um, to get an interview with Marina and get her perspective or get her on the record. It seems like at least at that level, it's really Bruce Buck and below will talk in interviews in the public, but everybody else above really doesn't make themselves available. Yeah, look, every journalist will have tried to have got uh, a Marina Granovskaya interview, um, but she doesn't seem, she doesn't want, she has that public profile anyway because of, her position at the club and how well she's um, carried out her duties at the club. But she she doesn't seek that profile. She doesn't want to put herself out. Some chief executives like to put themselves out. You know, Christian Perslow at Aston Villa loves to put himself in the public domain. He obviously worked at Chelsea before as well, and he, he loves to be out there. There are others, Ed Woodward even to a certain extent, who used to do things before he got a lot of criticism. He used to like to put himself out. Marina has not sought to put herself out at all. Funnily enough, actually, um, I'll tell you a little story. I can't remember how many years ago it had been. I'd imagine it's about four years ago. There was a, a conference at Chelsea about, um, I think it might have been one of the leaders in football conferences that they often stage at Stamford Bridge at Chelsea. And one of the talks was about to be um, the role of women in football. And they weren't just talking about women's football. They were talking about the role of, of women of, of, in positions at Premier League clubs. And Marina was was put out as down to to speak as a speaker at, at one of these events, and an email landed to every journalist saying that you know we have this event and here's a list of speakers, and they didn't make a big issue of the fact that Marina was on the list, but we all spotted that Marina was on the list. Chelsea and, and the conference got a flood of um, applications to be at the talk because it was going to be the first time that Marina Granovsky would have spoken publicly. And within minutes of that flood, um, we were informed that Marina Granovskaya was no longer going to speak at that event because she doesn't want the, she doesn't want or seek that that sort of profile. And you know, once you let the genie out of the lamp in terms of making yourself available, that's that's kind of out. You, you can't put the you can't put the stopper back in. Almost once once you allow a public profile, it's very difficult to then go back to what you were. So while she might like some stages or or there might be a temptation some stages to do one interview or to speak on one subject, there's also a reticence, I think, that once the genie is out the lamp, then everybody else will come in and make requests and everybody will want a piece of her and she just doesn't want that and she doesn't operate in that way. And I I, I also feel that, that probably Roman values are so highly as partly for the fact that her discretion as well as her work... Sadly for us, because, you know, I would absolutely love to interview Marina and Chelsea and probably Marina, just through my request to the club and other journalist requests, will be fully aware that people like me would love to sit around a table and actually pick her brains. But uh, unfortunately, that's yet to happen. Maybe one day, Touchwood. Yeah, they're holding on to that secret weapon real tight. Don't want any of the uh, mm-hmm. the tactics or the strategies accidentally getting out. Um, but just you talking about that reminded me just how good she is. And again, I think we probably take that for granted as Chelsea fans um, because she's just been at the helm for so long, but that's probably not completely normal at other clubs. I I just don't think people appreciate how hard she has to work. You know, Chelsea's board and management structure is actually pretty small in comparison to a lot of clubs in terms of numerically. And when you just look at the amount of loan players that come in and out of the club and, and the work that get, puts get in. I don't think people actually realise just the sheer hard work. I don't know how she does it. And also her judgment of the market for someone who, this is a horrible phrase, but who traditionally isn't a football person, you know, no experience of football before coming into Chelsea, no playing experience, no administrative experience, her judgment of the market, of the value of players and the way the market's going to go in terms of value of players from outside and the value of Chelsea's own players is, is absolutely incredible and, and far better than most, you know, far, far better than most, I would say. You know, if you, if you look when the season, I, I, I brought this up in the last pod and I'll bring it up again. Very interesting situation at the moment with Rüdiger. And if you look at her judgment of the market when Chelsea were in those renegotiation talks with Willian and eventually let him go at a stage when a lot of people would have thought it'd be a mistake to let Willian go. Very, very shrewd. Very, very shrewd indeed. So 
you know, kind of talking about being uh, shrewd and uh, coming up with maybe different answers to challenging problems. Uh, we did get a question from one of our uh, friends, Andrew, asking, should Chelsea break the bank for Antonio Rudiger? Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I know that we we said no transfers, uh, but, you know, this this seemingly falls under the list of renewals. So I think it gets uh, it can be asked without uh shepherding us too soon to january well i'll just ask a question back to you guys what what would you guys term as breaking the bank for ridiger what what's the figure that's breaking the bank i'm gonna put you on the spot well i mean the if you go to sign a similar level replacement and you put them on let's just say even 150 but then you add in an amortized fee per year potentially of nine to ten million on top of it you know 200,000 a week doesn't actually seem out of the realm of possibility if you're willing to commit more to wages than you would to kind of how you're amortizing the transfer fee. Well, and I think the the length of contract is important too, right, Matt? Because like if he's asking for a five-year contract, which I doubt he is, you know, that changes things. Whereas if it's a three-year contract, you'd be like, cool, give him 200 for three. That makes sense. And we can look at one-year renewals after that or however the club want to play it. Yeah, I mean... Well, I think you've picked a good figure because this 200,000 seems to be the magic figure. You know, it, it it feels like were Chelsea to go very close to the 200,000 mark, then then it would get quite serious in terms of the negotiations. That's that's obviously where Rüdiger and his people currently sort of value himself at. You know, there's there's been talk of some crazy money around in recent days where I, I just don't, I've got to be honest, I just don't see him being offered that anywhere, that, that sort of money. I, I don't really know which defenders do get offered that sort of money. 200,000 for a central defender of his age is, is right at the top of the market, right at the top of the market. But look, he's got an injury record, albeit not recently. His incredible, incredible form puts him in the bracket of, I would say, the best three central defenders in Europe at the moment. But that form isn't yet a year old, you know, you can't be sure that this form's going to last forever. His age comes into it. So there's there's a lot to weigh up. And this is where Marina's so shrewd. I think she probably has algorithms, to be quite honest with you, that she she judges this against. I've, I've actually heard that in the past, and I don't know whether it's true. So please don't anyone put this out as gospel. But I have heard in the past that there are algorithms that she has for both transfers and contracts um, that help her come to decisions in terms of numbers. And I would imagine there's some sort of algorithm that takes into account age, injuries, previous form versus current form. And that will all be going into it. Should Chelsea just go and offer £200,000 a week to Rudiger straight away? I would say no. I would say, and this is what I think Chelsea are doing, I would say see how, see how the next six months go with Rudiger. I personally don't see Rudiger in January agreeing anything with another club. It's a risk because he, he can do that. He can go and agree a pre-contract with another club and then you've lost the player. I don't think he would. I still suspect that his preference is to stay at Chelsea. Therefore, I think he will wait to try and find out what a final Chelsea offer looks like. Therefore, if you Chelsea, see what the next six months looks like. If in the next four, five, six months he carries on his form now, then yes, he's definitely worth £200,000 a week. If anything changes within that time, then maybe not. But I wouldn't be offering him £200,000 a week today in September, no. My big thing is just length of contract as well. As long as we're definitely no more than four, and four probably stretches it for me, but I would pay him a higher wage at the end of the six months, like I said, Matt, for a shorter contract is like a compromise. But again, Marina's going to be wheeling and dealing that, so, so we'll I was gonna see. I going to say that... that and that's a great point. That will all be coming into it. You know, he could probably earn a higher weekly wage on a shorter contract than a, than a slightly lower weekly wage on a longer contract and whether he's prepared to accept options and what those options look like. The, the detail in this that we, we won't get to know about will all be such key detail. Um, but to just say now, oh, just go and offer him exactly what he wants is is kind of a bit crazy. You know, his knee could, you know, touch wood, it doesn't happen. And, I, you know, there's there's no sign that it. it will. But, you know, yeah, 
his knee could give way tomorrow. So anything could happen. So Chelsea will be prudent. And, and as I say, what I would repeat is I, I do think that I get the impression that if he can, he would rather stay at Chelsea, which makes me think while he would like to judge the market in January, I think it's extremely unlikely he goes and agrees anything with anyone in January. All right. Well, here's a little throwback one from a good friend, Clayton. Uh, goes back to the transfer window, and this might have been in reaction to the Man City match. I don't know, but Clayton asked, was using Werner going to Dortmund in return for Holland ever discussed in the negotiations? He'd like to know if you know any insight into that. No, it never got... Haaland never got that far. They they did make a move for Haaland and try to, to do something on Haaland, but the, the, the money without having to go into whether they can do swaps, the money in terms of the agent fee, the transfer fee, the wages, what Borussia Dortmund were telling them, i.e., unless this is absolutely sky-high ridiculous, we just don't want to sell him. It just didn't get that far. It just did not get that far this summer, and it couldn't get that far. And we saw that with all the clubs. You know, it couldn't get that far with any club, let alone Chelsea. Whether that's something in the future will be interesting, because obviously, you know you'd imagine that Dortmund will have to sell him next summer and to have a ready-made replacement who has done incredibly well in, in German football and who we are told from German reports would be on a, a Dortmund shortlist, albeit maybe not at the top. Um, but once you've got Lukaku, I, I, I don't see them going for Haaland now. I've got to be honest, you've got Lukaku. You know, I'm not sure you can have Lukaku and Haaland together and also the finances of that are just ridiculous. I, I think the Haaland one for Chelsea's gone, to be honest with you. You can do it in your uh, edition of FIFA 22. We are not sponsored by FIFA 22, but I'm yeah, sure you right. can do it there. <laughs> the game drives me um, the wall. The frustration I get out of that. No chance, Dan. No chance. Well, Matt, uh, we had another question from JS. is asking about a former Chelsea player. So, again, just sneaks under the wire because it, a former Chelsea player as of the start of this season Livermento receiving rave reviews at Southampton. Will the club already be thinking about making him a part of the future? <laughs> a month can make in. way after six Premier League matches and a display against Man City. <laughs> I saw this question. The only thing it did, did um, the, the interesting thing about the question is, is uh, what taking this back to Nathan Ake, who obviously had the buyback when he was at Bournemouth. What I've since been told about Nathan Ake's buyback was that. It only activated after he'd been at Bournemouth two years. So Bournemouth basically said, we can't have a buyback clause whereby we buy this player and the very next summer we lose this player. We just can't have that. That's ridiculous. So the buyback was done whereby it could only be activated after Ake had been at Bournemouth for two years. I would guess, and I don't know, again, I want to stress I don't know because sometimes people always assume that, wrongly assume that I kind of talk as though I know everything. Um but I would guess that the Livramento and Gerhi deals are similar. I can't believe that a Premier League club can can take a player and have a deal where they can lose him in the very next summer transfer window. So I would imagine that it's after two years of being there. It's almost like a two-year loan, which Chelsea have done before, obviously, with, with, um, with Christensen. So I would imagine and I would guess that Chelsea don't have the option to take Livramento back next summer but it would probably be from the summer onwards or for a certain amount of time from the summer onwards after that. And, and it'd be two years because Southampton surely have got to protect themselves a little bit. Whether if they got relegated, that changes, that probably is a, another thing to throw into the mix. Um, but I, I would have thought that, that Chelsea couldn't take him immediately back. And also that probably wouldn't be good for him. But wow, I mean, he has done... You, you asked me about watching Conor Gallagher and Billy Gilmore before... Watching Livramento, he has done incredibly well. Like, I'm not being funny, but Carl Walker-Peters was a decent right-back for Southampton. You know, he was okay for them. He was he was not a bad right-back for Southampton, but Livramento has come in and taken his place and, and just taken it up a notch and done so, so well. And he, do, he, he, to me, does look like a player who could definitely come back to Chelsea because we've seen that on the right-back position in terms of depth and the right wing-back particularly, it feels like they want something something more there. And so he does feel like a player who could come back to Chelsea and, and have a real opportunity, certainly within the squad. But 
I would be amazed if Southampton have, have signed up to a deal where they can lose him the very next summer transfer window. You know, I think he's even made his way into quite a few fantasy Premier League teams because uh-huh. he's cheap and he plays 90 minutes consistently, and that is huge. And and then Southampton get the odd you know draw against Manchester United, and he gets the bonus points, the clean sheet points. So again, I think credit to Tino from going literally from a development squad side to a starting Premier League squad. That That is a huge jump. And, you know, the circumstances could have been right, things like that. But to your point, Matt, most managers will take Walker Peters just because at least he's experienced, right? They, You know, he knows what to expect. But they're happy to let Tino learn on the job. And he seems to be taking every opportunity running with it. So I think the biggest thing goes credit to the player for making that very difficult transition from youth academy to starting in the Premier League week in, week out. Um, yeah, yeah, and credit, credit, credit's a sort of his agent and people as well because that now looks like a really good move for him. You know, when he went there, I was actually a little bit worried, would he play? Because as I say, I've, I've seen Southampton a lot with Walker-Peters and right back didn't strike me as an area of the pitch they were, you know, massively lacking in. And I, I thought if he goes to Southampton and doesn't play, then that would be a really poor move for him. Um, but credit to his agent, they've obviously sorted it out very well with Ralph Hussenhuttle and, and people at Southampton in terms of guarantees and, and where he would fit in. And it's going to be a really good club for him, that, to develop at. All right, last question here from my... Oh, I guess, sorry, Dan, that was yours. My, I think... That's am, okay. Am I stealing you know, your thunder? You're, you're the host. You just jump in wherever you want. That's oh. okay. Uh, anyway, Gabriel had a question about, uh, again, you know, we sometimes have these questions that uh, focus a little bit more on Matt, the person, and mm. he wanted to understand a little bit more about your favorite traditions when going to watch a home match at Aston Villa and how do you turn off the football journalist brain and just be a, van, a fan when it comes to a Villa match? It's really easy, actually. It's funny because if I watch Villa as a, as a journalist, which I've had to do, um, you know, twice recently against Chelsea, and I, I am planning to do at the weekend against Tottenham when Villa play Tottenham. Um, I, I approach those games as a journalist. You know, there's there's no particular celebrations from me if they score. And there's even in the penalty shootout against Chelsea, I don't really get nervous like I do when I'm a fan. But when I go as a fan, I just feel completely different. It's nothing conscious I do. It's just something that, that happens. So I couldn't tell you <laughs> any sort of weird routine I go through or any sort of mindset change that I plan. Um it's just a very, very different feel. And it's a very, very, you know, I don't get nervous when I watch a match as a journalist, even when it's Villa. And yet when I watch a match as a fan, I get nervous like any other fan. And I I shout at the ref and I convince myself that the other team are getting all the decisions and my team aren't getting any decisions. And I fill myself with conspiracy theories and I get carried away and all, exactly the same. But no, and to be honest now, in terms of pre-match routine, because I've got uh, young children who I try to take with me when I go to, to get them involved in it. Um, it's more about just getting them ready rather than sort of anything myself. So pretty boring answer, I'm afraid. Oh man, you, uh, you debunked my theory. I assumed the difference was the beer involved and how that might help you change your mindset. <laughs> uh, do you know what? I would, I would, I would love to go to a, um, I would love to go to a game as a fan with a lot of beer involved again. I haven't done that for a long, long time. Cause now, like I say, when I go as a fan, I'm trying to take my kids along because I want my kids to get into it. And I obviously sort of desperately want my kids to get the villa bug a little bit. So I'm all about my, my kids going, which completely ruins any chance of, of doing the, the sort of old, the, the old school way of going and having a few beers before. That would be great fun. But I just don't see when I'm going to get to do that again, if I'm honest with you. Extra dad points for for uh, setting up the next generation, Matt. Uh, Perslow will be quite uh, indebted to, I'm I'm sure. Um, <laughs> my only last question for you is: Is it very different covering Chelsea and Tottenham? Maybe this season, especially. Like, no offense to Tottenham fans, but it's like when you approach your articles, I feel like you're just in Spurs. You're going, "What is going on? Like, how are we in this position?" And then with Chelsea. I, and they're not. It's not that your Tottenham articles aren't serious, but it's like Chelsea. It's like okay, let's have an honest conversation about the breakdown. Where's Tuchel in this? It just seems like Tottenham are so far off balance and teetering that you're just like, you're not even digging into things with them. Well, I'm digging into lots of different things. To be honest, I mean, I wrote a big piece yesterday, which digging into a lot of issues within the club in terms of the staff that work at the club and some non-football related stuff. So I'm I'm digging into things in a different way. 
look at cycles, you know, it's only two or three years ago where I was writing a lot of praise about Tottenham. You know, the, the year they got to the Champions League final and a lot of the years under Pochettino, even though they didn't win anything, I was writing a lot of praise about Tottenham and, and writing a, a lot of similar pieces to what I write now about Tuchel, actually, trying to delve into Pochettino's methods, trying to delve into how he'd, he'd got the best out of some players that previously people hadn't got the best out of. But it's it's cyclical, you know, and, and Tottenham are in a very different position now as a club and they're in a very different position now to, to Chelsea as a club. They're always a very different club to Chelsea because they operate very differently. But just in terms of where the team is, it's, it's, it's very, very different. But to be honest, it's cyclical. You know, it's only, it's not even 12 months ago since, you know, I was having to write about, you know, Lampard leaving and, and what had gone on behind the scenes with Chelsea and, and stuff like that, which isn't that much different to what I've recently been writing about with Tottenham, with losing managers and hiring new managers. So it's funny how these things go around in cycles. And it's funny how you look at football now and you wonder how the cycle will ever change. You wonder how anything will ever go wrong for Tuchel and Chelsea. And you kind of wonder how every, anything will ever go right again for Tottenham. But they will. At some point, they will. At some point, it will... You look, at some point, it will go wrong for Tuchel and Chelsea. It will. Because football is cyclical. It's just how long the cycle lasts. Will it go wrong in 12 months? Will it go wrong in two years? Will it go wrong in three years? Will it go wrong in six months? We don't know but it's cyclical. Similarly with Tottenham, it's impossible now to look at Tottenham and think how on earth will they get themselves out of this death spiral they seem to be entering. And I suspect that the death spiral will have to get worse before it gets better. But at some stage, it probably will get better because the foundations of Tottenham are quite strong with their stadium and everything. So it comes again, and it's weird how, as I say, you look at clubs and you just wonder how will this club ever do badly again or how will this club ever do well again? And yet the cycle turns. My own club, Villa, is a good example of that. You know, only a few years ago, you'd have looked at Villa. How will this club ever compete ever again? Just compete in the Premier League, let alone try and compete for any sort of silverware, which they're still a long way off doing. And yet, slowly but surely, uh, they've managed to, to do well. And now they're a team that you can go to Manchester United and win and go into a game against Tottenham at the weekend with some confidence. These, these things change. But yeah, you're right. At the moment, I'm writing on such different stratospheres with Tottenham and Chelsea. One is all about strife within the club, problems with employees, problems, deep-rooted problems that go much further than the manager. And, and one is where everything is so good and, and yet one defeat at Manchester City and you're, you're trying to debunk that and really it's, it's kind of one one defeat and, you know everything's pretty rosy to be quite honest with you all right dan that backfired he compared us too closely to spurs so we might have to cut that in post-production i only kid it is it is your years of experience matt they give us that perspective even when to your point as fans we like to think that uh we're nowhere close to spurs but we do appreciate all the time you spent remember matt is in a hotel room in turin right now so he's putting in the extra work we really really appreciate that apologize for any audio blips or things like that um but uh making the effort getting the news out uh dan appreciate you being here your early morning um your early morning time zone on the west coast it's it's a rough ride for you sometimes well matt asked for you know the press conference meant that uh being at the normal recording time meant i got an extra hour of sleep it was great i'm, I'm okay <laughs> i'm feeling wonderful well, well, that all worked out. Matt, safe travels. Enjoy the match tomorrow again. Thanks for your time. Cheers, guys. Thanks a lot. See you later. Awesome. Well, as always, Chelsea fans, more content to come later this week. Uh, but until next time, Chelsea fans, you know what to do? Keep the blue flag flying high. Flying high.